One that uprunner with his shore sota, the drocht of March hath persed to the rota, and bathed every vine sweetly cool, of which virtue engendered is the floor. One zephyrous egg with his sweeter breath, in spirit hath on every holt and heath the tender cropus, and the younger son hath in the ram his half a corsirona, and smaller fowlers mock in melody, and sleepin' on the nicht with open e. So pricketh him nature and here courages, the long and folk to list to podcast fiction. That's right. Today's episode is going to be entirely in Chaucerian English. No, no, thank God that is not true. But we are going to be listening to a stalwart of the fantasy genre today. And even though it's March and not April, I was in a mood to get medieval. It's the Once and Future Nerd coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Something I love about the Once and Future Nerd is how delicately it walks a line. Genre awareness can be a touchy thing. It's a tightrope that you walk between being too clever and too critical of the genre you're working in, risking alienating your audience by saying, hey, that thing you like, it's bad. But on the other hand, you could make critiques too subtle and find yourself absorbed into the very things you had intended to criticize, rendering it indistinguishable from the thing you wanted to parody in the first place. The Once and Future Nerd, I feel, does what it does in a very agile way. You can tell that the people who make it really do love fantasy fiction, but they want to tug at the fabric of its tapestry, tell stories not just of royals and castles, but of people at the margins. It wants to question power structures, both real and fictitious. It's a portal fantasy, like Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Three contemporary Pennsylvanians find themselves yanked out of high school and deposited without ceremony in the fantasy realm of Jordan. The experience changes all of them. This is one of those shows that has some of the most satisfying character development I've yet encountered in our young medium. Jordan shows the Pennsylvanians a dark mirror by which they see not just themselves, but America. We like to say that science fiction about the future is really just political writing about now, but we don't really say that for fantasy. And I think this is very much a fantasy story for our time. The Once and Future Nerd has been going on since 2013, so if you love this show as much as I do, you're in for the long haul, my friend. You can plow through the backlog in two weeks if you make a concerted effort, like I did for a re-lesson before I interviewed co-creator and director Christian Kelly Madera. But like a fine elvish wine, this is also a show to return to and savor slowly. We're going to play the first two episodes today. Quick content warning, the first episode contains a fleeting homophobic slur used once by a character that is never heard from again. There is also some spooky arcane violence. Here's the first episode of Book One, Princes of Jordan. Imagine, if you can, what life is like for a rabbit. Imagine what it means to be vulnerable all your life which is my very poetic way of saying that life's hard for a rabbit. Life's also hard for a small business owner who accidentally witnesses the death of God. But I'd rather start with the rabbit, 
This particular story begins with a rabbit who is called... Hmm, let me come back to what he was called. The Speech of the Sprites. I'm a wood sprite, you see. He's a very old tongue. It was never known by the wood folk or the river folk. Even the fearsome and venerable mountain folk have long since forgotten it. But it is still the tongue in which all life forms that lack the organs of speech can commune, and we, the wood sprites, hear all. The name of this particular rabbit in the speech of the sprites is best translated as Mr. Fluffy Toes. Mr. Fluffy Toes had been having a good day. He had eaten a few solid meals and avoided detection by an owl through skillful burrowing. He had taken to foraging for another meal in the magical din of the nocturnal forest. So you can imagine his disappointment when, out of nowhere, an arrow flew through his ribcage and punctured his liver. You've got to be shitting me, thought Mr. Fluffy Toes, approximately. It couldn't have been at least a decent hunter? At least owls know how to stun and kill quickly. In his defense, the bowman, who was called Peter of Brimshire, never claimed to be a good hunter. Peter owned an inn, which was in a rather remote location. Apparently, Peter of Brimshire had never heard the adage, location, location, location. And if truth be told, Peter was not very smart. A decent man, to be sure, but not what you might call sharp. Indeed, Peter was not nearly as smart relative to other men as Mr. Fluffy Toes was relative to other rabbits. It actually makes the whole thing seem kind of unfair. Then again, Peter was not nearly as prolifically successful a procreator as Mr. Fluffy Toes, so win some, lose some. But I digress. Peter of Brimshire would not normally have been out hunting, least of all at this hour. But the remoteness of Peter's inn meant that when a nobleman of no small wealth and power asked for a room, Peter was strongly inclined to cater to his every whim including his bizarre request for rabbit stew in the middle of the night. He was actually surprised when he made the shot. He had removed the arrow and was about to start skinning the mortal remains of the late Mr. Fluffy Toes when the faint orange glow of fire off in the distance caught his attention. He crept clumsily towards the glow and found it to be coming from a clearing Peeking into the clearing, he saw a vat of burning oil casting an angry orange light around the trees. From among the trees emerged a figure in a black hooded cloak, its face invisible. Peter quickly ducked back into hiding and then slowly peeked back out. Dozens more cloaked figures emerged from the woods and gathered around the edge of the clearing. Four broke through the crowd, dragging behind them a man in chains. It was all Peter could do not to cry out in alarm, for the chained man was the very nobleman who had sent him out rabbit hunting, the crest of House Gwernathal emblazoned proudly on his chest, 
It occurred to Peter that this entire hunting trip had been for naught. It did not occur to Peter that, had he not gone hunting, he would have been at his inn when the scary cloaked things came to abduct his guest. As I said, not too clever, that Peter of Brimshire. Where was I? Oh, yes, the figures in cloaks. They drew Peter's wealthy guest down and nailed his chains to the ground with iron stakes so that his limbs were splayed apart. Two of the wraith-like things knelt by his wrists with daggers, while a third one, larger than the rest, unsheathed a two-handed sword. Peter's sense of duty overcame his earlier selfish thoughts. He could not sit idly by while the High Prince, his High Prince, was murdered. With a shaking hand, he reached for an arrow. That's when the fear paralyzed him. Because at that moment, an awed silence came over the cloaked congregation. They parted to make way for another figure, slight of stature and feminine of gait. Her appearance was not what petrified Peter, but rather the staff she carried. It was sharpened at the bottom, and the markings on it were wrong. The shapes on it were not things that should be. At least in Peter's mind. She removed her hood, but her back was to Peter. She was too far away for Peter to hear the following exchange, but we sprites, as I said, hear all. Not your most imaginative work. You haven't seen the interesting part yet. See you soon, my dear. Will you now? The woman nodded, and with chilly resolve, her minions opened the chained man's wrists as the greatsword came down on his neck. The pointed end of the eldritch staff pierced his heart. The last thing Peter of Brimshaw's eyes ever saw was a flash of brilliant light. Somewhere, not so very far away, a newborn infant slid through a flash of brilliant light and into the world. The Once and Future Nerd Book One, Princes of Jordan Chapter One, The Prince of Jordan Episode One. Until indicated otherwise, what follows is admittedly hearsay. I have it from a friend sprite. A toilet seat bacteria sprite, if you must know. For indeed, even among the sprites, some draw the short straw career-wise. But my friend is honest and not overly prone to exaggeration, so I shall relay her story to you and you may take it as salted as you please. My friend lives in a land that is called Northeast Pennsylvania by its inhabitants. In this land, there is a school, and in this school there is a bathroom with several toilet stalls. 
The story my friend told begins with a boy and a girl in one of those toilet stalls. They had 17 and 16 years and were called Billy and Jen, respectively. He wore a red and gold jacket, which signified his captaincy of the school's football team. And she wore the traditional garments of what is called a cheerleader, also in red and gold. They were both quite handsome and well-formed of body, and were thus drawn to each other as humans of that age are wont to be. Are you sure about this, Billy? Babe, I told you it'd be alright, didn't I? But, but what if... Billy pulled her in for a kiss, and she quickly forgot her reservations. Until, that is, the door of the bathroom flew open. Several athletes marched in, teammates of Billy's in fact, carrying another boy by the collar of his red button-down short-sleeved shirt. This boy was called Nelson. He had 16 years, dark skin, and wore spectacles. The athletes threw him down onto the windowsill. You fucked me over, you little shit. I was counting on your answers to pass pre-calc. Now I can't play this weekend. Nelson knew it was in his best interest to remain silent or possibly apologize, but could not stop himself from blurting out... I'm not even good at math. Maybe you should do your own work. What the fuck was that? You gotta watch your mouth, faggot. Nelson looked frantically for some means of escape. He saw a device built for alerting people to a fire and activated it. An ear-piercing bell rang out. Shit, man. We should bail. We'll get you later, Queermo. As the athletes scattered, Nelson breathed a sigh of relief. Billy popped his head out of the toilet stall. The hell's going on out here? In marched a stern-looking man who was called Archibald Connor, but who demanded the students call him Principal Connor. Billy and Jen dove back into their stall and closed the door before he saw them. For what they had been doing was counter to rules enforced by Archibald Connor. What in God's name? Nelson, who pulled that alarm? Connor looked on the floor under the stall, but could only see Billy's legs. Is that you, Williams? It's me, Principal Connor, sir. Connor reached up to the wall and shut off the warning device. Did you set off that alarm, Williams? It was me. Nonsense, son. Don't insult my intelligence. But Principal Connor... I'll hear no more of it. You don't have to cover for him. Captain of the football team isn't above the rules. But it really was me. You see, I was... It was! Well, I must say, I'm very disappointed in you. I was more than happy to set you up with counseling for your trouble socializing and poor grades. Well, I do my... But we can't stand for you endangering other students. For shame. Oh, well. Detention for you. But it was only in self defense No excuses, young man. We've got a zero-tolerance policy here. If I make an exception for you, I'll need to make one for everyone. Hey, Williams. I also need to talk to that idiot sinner of yours. He hasn't been in here recently, has he? Just me. You want to help me hold it? Enraged by this show of disrespect, Connor burst into an adjacent stall, climbed onto the toilet, and peered over the divider to see Jen crouched on top of the toilet. She looked mortified. Now, in the land of northeast Pennsylvania, students were commonly punished by being forced to stay at school when their classmates had left, typically while confined to a particularly boring area of the school. 
For those wishing to learn more about this custom, my friend tells me the definitive text on the matter was penned by a bard called John Hughes. So it was that Billy, Jen, and Nelson found themselves incarcerated in the library of Valley Central High School one fateful afternoon. With them were their personal effects, namely Billy's sporting armour or football pads, Jen's collection of assorted accoutrements in a handbag, and Nelson's gaming token which was called a D20 by those skilled in its use, and which he wore in a vial around his neck. Also with them, less importantly, was one more detained student who... Well, let's just call him a herbalist who had become overfond of certain plants. On a library table in front of Nelson were several writing utensils, which Nelson had arranged in order of size and colour. For you see, a tiny part of Nelson's mind, the part that men cannot or will not speak of, feared that if certain things were not in a certain order, some calamity would befall him. But more on that later. Jen examined herself in a small looking-glass or compact, and fixed her hair nervously. This is bullshit. I need to be at practice. I can't believe he caught us making out. Oh my god, Shannon's never gonna let me live this down. Jen threw her compact into her handbag. I told you she was a bitch. Yeah, but she's still captain. She's captain because she's a bitch. She's captain because she's skinnier than me. Nah, babe. You're way prettier. Girls just love picking on each other. Hey. Why'd you have to pull that alarm? I should kick your nerd ass. Your teammates were in the process of assaulting me. I didn't even know you were in there. Nelson grimaced again at his own candor. Hey, watch your tone. Nelson lowered his eyes and kept them down. The herbalist removed a dessert infused with his favorite plant from his backpack and took a bite. You must have did something to deserve it anyway. Aw, oh, Billy, I don't think Nelson meant to cause trouble. Hey! I don't need you taking his fucking side. Jen also lowered her eyes. We don't need you to throw so many fucking interceptions. The fuck did you just say, Dennis? My guild needs me. What? My World of Warcraft guild is going on a huge raid in 12 minutes, and they're counting on me. I'm the raid leader. Billy stared at him for a few seconds, before making a hand gesture that simulated self-gratification. I can't believe I'm thinking of doing this, but... Maybe I can give Charles my login? As Nelson got up and walked towards a machine called a computer, there was a flash of lightning and a rumble of thunder. At least you're not missing practice anymore. Fuck that. I'm not scared of some rain. God damn it. Principal Connor must have had him cut off the internet after school hours. Jen pulled some lipstick out of her handbag and applied it. Nelson, in his frustration, proceeded to make an obnoxious racket on the computer machine. Fuck, shit, fuck, come on! You're a nerd. Can't you just reroute the encryptions or some shit like that and shut up about it? Oh, oh, I see. You must have been taken in by the popular misconception that everyone smart knows how to hack a computer. Or that computer hacking is magic. Or that in encryptions or a thing that can be rerouted. It was a particularly violent thunderclap, which startled Jen into dropping her lipstick and somehow extinguished the lights. My friend has not explained to me how exactly this happens. 
Everyone, stay calm. I always have a flashlight in my backpack. Nelson walked back to his table and rummaged through his belongings. Did anyone see where my lipstick fell? Chen got up to look. Some real quality shit you got in here, Connor. I think it rolled over here somewhere. She bent down to look for it under some desks. I got it. The lights popped back on, and as Nelson looked up, his eyes were drawn straight to Jen's posterior, which she was holding up in the air as she looked for her lipstick. Billy's attention was similarly captured. But as soon as he realized that Nelson was looking... Hey! Jen started at this eruption, jumped up, and bumped her head. Ow! Shit! What the fuck, you little perv? Oblivious to Jen, Billy grabbed Nelson's collar with one hand and made the other into a fist. What do you take me for, looking at my woman like that? Jen ran over and got between them. Billy, take it easy. You stay out of this, Jenny. Despite the imminent threat of bodily harm, Nelson's gaze had drifted out the window, where he realized that the sun was out and the sky was bluer than he had ever seen it. Then, there was an enormous thundercrack. The sky changed back to stormy. A lightning bolt burst through the window and immolated Billy, Jen and Nelson and their belongings in a blinding pillar of light. As the light faded away, an unnatural fire broke out in the library, spread and then extinguished as quickly as it had appeared. At this point, I'm told, the herbalist very quickly put away his dessert and looked around warily for several moments. Thus concludes the hearsay portion of this story, at least for a while. I can tell you firsthand about the bedchambers of Dagmar Guernatal, nay Greenhorn, who was called High Queen of the Human Realms of Jordan. I can tell you of how the curtains were drawn, and the lavish room dank and dark, on the day that her lifeblood ran out of her womb. I can tell you about the philosopher who held a mirror under her pale nose, hoping against his better knowledge to see it fog. And I can tell you about Brennan, the base-born warrior whose battlefield exploits as a young man had earned him a generalship and a seat at the High King's right hand, and not a few scars, but never lands or a title. And now, in his sixth decade of life, it fell to Brennan to tell Gunther Guernatal, who was called High King of the Human Realms of Jordan, of his young wife's untimely demise. King Gunther had reached his seventh decade, but not easily. His body was sound for his age, but his face had the weary look of a man who has seen too much tragedy. When Brennan told him of his queen, he winced as though he had just been mortally wounded. And the child? I am sorry, Your Grace. You know I grieve with you. Why, old friend? Why has Galadin forsaken us? Soldiers cannot concern themselves with the will of the gods, only that of their king. They will come, General. Yes, Your Grace, as soon as they find out. How long to mobilize and arm the reserves? With fortune on our sides, two or three days. Then we must conceal it at least that long. The Tarlow Heel must not find out. Station our most loyal men at the gates, no one in or out of the inner hold without my orders. It will be done, Your Grace. And Brennan, tell all our patrolmen garrison in the village, be on high alert for any unfamiliar travelers. 
And it was around that time that there was a flash in the sky above a forest a few miles from Guernatal's castle. Down tumbled three young human bodies, their falls slowed by the branches and bramble. Slowed enough that the impact wasn't fatal, but not so much that they didn't lose consciousness when they hit the ground. And as you may have guessed, if you've a flair for the dramatic, those bodies belonged to Billy, Jen, and Nelson. And here's episode two of book one of The Once and Future Nerd. The Once and Future Nerd. Book one, Princes of Jordan. Chapter one, The Prince of Jordan. Episode 2 It was a little before dusk when Jen began to stir. She was the first of the three to come to, as they had all suffered quite a fall, you remember. She sat up, bruised in places she didn't realize could bruise. Billy? Hey, hey, Billy. Uh, oh, oh, Nelson? Are you all right? Where the hell are we? From the looks of it, a wooded area in a northern temperate zone. Oh, these, these trees are so pretty. <clears throat> Billy? Do we win, coach? Billy, Billy, wake up. Shit. Oh, you, you okay, babe? I don't think I'm hurt, but where are we? Okay, what's the last thing you remember? Your butt cheeks. Billy, taking this as a personal slight, found it in himself to throw a handful of dirt in Nelson's general direction while remaining prone. Kowalski. I remember being in detention with Dennis Kowalski. That freak must have slipped us something. The sun's still up, so I don't think we've been out that long. Oh, shit. What time is it? Going by the sun, it can't be much past six, can it? No, no. Oh, shit. I missed the raid. My guild will be furious. They might kick me out. Billy dragged himself to his feet. Don't worry, Jen. I used to go hunting with my uncle. Now the sun's setting that way, and the moss is growing that way, which means... I don't know if you can go by that. I think we read in bio class about lots of things determining moss growth, didn't we? Be quiet, Jenny. I need to think. Okay, so what direction from school are the woods? All of them. We're from Nepa. Right. All of them. <gasps> Jen, what? Shh. Did you guys feel anything? Billy and Nelson shook their heads no. They all sat in silence for several long seconds as Jen collected herself. I, I could have sworn this log just moved. Don't be silly, babe. You're just- Jen was lifted into the air and thrown down by the log, which, if you hadn't guessed, was in fact a massive serpent with skin-like tree bark. The three young travelers looked up, petrified, as the beast poised to strike. 
when suddenly there was a wet thud. An arrow had embedded itself very deep into the serpent's eye. The creature, to its credit, managed to continue resembling a tree trunk as it crashed to the ground, stiff and dead. Holy shit. We're all right, babe. What the hell was that thing? Maybe we're in New Jersey. What are you doing out here? Bounding down from the trees, bow in hand, came an elf. If you've never seen an elf on the hunt, the best I can do by way of description is to ask you to imagine the speed, grace, and strength of a panther was somehow transferred into a man-shaped body. Like all elves, he had pale skin. His long, blonde hair was tied into several beaded braids, as was fashionable at the time for adolescent elves. What are you doing out here? And what in Selberin are you wearing? At 173 years old, this elf, who was called Yiluin, was at a particularly obnoxious stage of elvish adolescence. I've been out here for three days tracking that kill. You nearly scared her off. Wow, this is the best cosplay I've ever seen. I can't even see the seams on your ears. Are those latex or polystyrene? Yes, well... All's well that ends well, I suppose. She'll still make a very fine trophy. He knelt by the head of the snake and unsheathed a golden hunting knife of elven design. As Billy pulled Jen aside for a private conversation, Nelson noticed the ornate carvings on Yiluin's bow. That bow is amazing. Where's it from? The sacred wood of the Huat Forest. Is that that kiosk at the mall in Scranton? Yiluin began to saw through the neck of the serpent with his knife. Now, at that time, Yiluin was serving as Kaltir of House Guernatal. Kaltir was what elves called an advisor. Many young elves were keen to acquire these positions as they made one's petition for membership in the Elven High Council much more attractive. This fact will become relevant to our tale soon enough. So what's your read on this guy? Is he like a psycho or what? Nah, he's one of those backwoods survivalists. They're not all bad, just a little off. I can hear you perfectly well. The fact that elves can hear exceptionally well is also relevant to our tale. Having never met an elf before, though, Billy still believed he was talking to a strange man with deformed ears, and Yiluin's eavesdropping caught him off guard. Okay, let me guess. You're in some kind of militia or something? My clan has a proud military tradition, if that's what you're asking. Nelson, honey, you want to take a few steps back from the heavily armed clansmen? And I bet you and all your kin can trace your lineage back to the Civil War. Yiluin was at Billy with a forearm on his throat. What do you know of Civil War? Whoa, 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 I think you meant the War of Northern Aggression, D didn't you, Billy? So the attack will come from the north. Leaf of Felgear? I knew I never liked that bastard. What the hell are- How did you come by this knowledge? 
Speak while you're still able. Please don't kill my boyfriend, mister. We really don't know anything about this leaf guy. We just want to get back to school in one piece. Yilloween relaxed his grip just enough for Billy to speak. <coughs> Choose your words very carefully, human, for they may mean your life. What knowledge do you have of civil war? Abraham Lincoln, Emancipation Proclamation, Gettysburg Address. Yilloween stared back in confusion. Cautiously, he further relaxed his grip on Billy. Where did you study history? Valley Central High. After sizing the three humans up for a few seconds, the elf let Billy go. They all stood around for a moment, as the proper etiquette for this particular situation was unknown to them all. So where are we right now? You're in lands claimed by His Majesty Gunther Gwernatal, High King of the Human Realms of Jordan. Is that a new expansion pack? Why don't we... Jen, let me handle this. You think you could point us to the nearest town without going schizo on me? I'm heading that way myself. I suppose I could escort you, since you're obviously in no place to defend yourselves. What the hell does that mean? It means you were very nearly a serpent supper, human. Speaking of which, as long as you're heading back to town with me, would you mind helping me with that? So it came to pass that the three humans found themselves walking down a path on the edge of the woods, with Billy and Nelson dragging the body of the serpent behind them by some leather straps. Yilloween strode in front, with the serpent's head under one arm, and looking very satisfied. Billy and Nelson looked considerably less satisfied. You sure you don't want my help? Don't, don't be silly, babe. Nelson, are you pulling it all? Come on, man. Well, not all of us were made to feel welcome in the school weight room. The great spire of Castle Gwernatal appeared over the horizon. Oh, wow. I didn't know there were any castles in Pennsylvania. After a few more minutes of walking, the four came upon a large boulder. Had the three humans been outdoorsmen, they would have noticed the strangeness of this boulder, as the surrounding land had no large rocks. They did, however, notice the strangeness of the boulder being in a small crater and smeared with dried blood. How was that? Very easy way to kill a bear if you're dragging ass looking to feed her young. This led to some very troubled looks between the humans. What's that they say in that movie with the monkeys? Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. That's the one. It took them about an hour or so to arrive at the outer hold of Gwenmetal Castle. It was a modest village with wooden walls, over which the tall stone walls of the inner hold always loomed. Only a few sideways glances were cast at the giant carcass Billy and Nelson were dragging. That's far enough, thank you. You can put her down. <clears throat> so what's your gamer tag? I can put in a good word for you with my guild if you want. I certainly do not care. Jen looked at Billy and motioned towards the elf in such a way as suggested Billy should talk to him. Billy shrugged in such a way as made clear he hadn't quite got the hang of understanding Jen's wishes. 
Listen, Mr. My name is Yellowween. Yellowween? Your name's Yellowween? Yellowween. Okay. Well, pleased to meet you. I'm Jennifer. Thank you for walking us back to town. Yes, yes. Merely doing my civic duty as an officer of the king's court. I can't believe this asshole's name is Yellowween. How many ass kickings did you get in school? Mr. Yellowween, if you could point us in the direction of Lackawanna, Pennsylvania, we'd sure appreciate it. I've never heard of it. Now, if you'll excuse me, I find the three of you very odd, and I don't much care for your company. He handed Jen a small coin purse. So, buy yourselves a meal or proper clothes or something and leave me alone. Farewell. He hoisted the carcass over his shoulders with no effort and walked off towards the castle. Wait! Mr. Yellowween, we could really use some help getting back home. Sorry, urgent business to attend to. Thanks for nothing, jerk off. There comes a point in every great adventure. The songs and tapestries usually gloss over this part. When the heroes haven't a clue in the world what to do next. This was that moment. Wherever we are, we gotta eat, right? A little while later, they found themselves in a wooden tavern, the sort of place where anyone on the social ladder can get what was at least nominally a meal. The sights, and frankly smells, of the tavern did nothing to make the three young humans feel more at home. At least it's charmingly quaint. Billy took a seat at the bar, and his companions followed suit. They were approached by the barman. What would you care for? Two beers. And a milk for the kid. I'll have a mead. The fuck is mead, you weirdo? Nelson then found it necessary to remedy some minor imperfections in his place setting. Anything to eat? Steak. I'll have a... Whatever the chef recommends, please. How's your mutton? Smelling a bit ripe today, I'd go with the pheasant. Under the bar, Billy grabbed the coin purse out of Jen's hand. And uh, keep a little something for yourself. And threw the purse on the bar. What's that? Money? Well, how much is in there? Uh, we're not really from around here. I don't know how the exchange of coin for goods and services is handled where you come from, but around here, things have a price that you pay. You don't just throw an arbitrary amount of money down and forget it. All right, all right. I didn't mean anything by it. Let's just see what you have here. 15, 30, 45, 60. He sized up the travelers once more. 65, 70, 75, that covers it. Did those all look like the same type of coin to you? Be back with the food. He rushed off. Score, they didn't even cart us. At about the same time, Yellowine reached the gates of the inner hold, still carrying his trophy kill effortlessly. Evening, constables. Halt! State your name and purpose and await permission to enter! Pardon? Come no closer or you will be fired upon! I am Caltier to His Majesty's court. What is the meaning of this? Apologies, my lord, His Majesty's orders. No one in or out without his word. Realising that this was rather irregular, the elf finally put down his snake. Did something happen? The guards looked at each other 
shocked that the Kaltir had not heard of the recent developments. You haven't, by chance, seen any suspicious strangers around, have you? At which point Yellowin recalled that he had indeed seen three peculiar strangers very recently. It was a few minutes later, and Jen, Billy and Nelson were staring into three flagons of ale which were decidedly warmer and chunkier than they were used to. When the tavern doors burst open, Yilluween marched in, followed by a dozen of the castle's garrison, pikes gleaming and at the ready. That's them, Captain. Arrest them. And so it came to pass that the three travellers found themselves detained for the second time in one day, and for the first time in their lives at the uncomfortable end of lethal weapons. For additional information and bonus content, access onceandfuturenerd.com on your computer machine. The Once and Future Nerd is written and created by Zach Glass and Christian Madeira, and directed and edited by Christian Madeira. It is performed by Garrett Armin, Hayes Dunlop, Anya Gibeon, Ian Harkins, Emily Kukuk, Frank Queris, Julie Reed, Perry Strong, and Dylan Uremovich. It is co-executive produced by Jess Kelly, with mixing and sound design by Gary O'Keefe, and original score by Tom Lee. Thanks for downloading. Here comes the outro. Hey, if you really dug that, please stick around for next week's show when I interview Christian, the show's director. We have a wonderful conversation about characters that span the full run of the series. So, hey, throwing down a gauntlet right here, right now. If you've never listened to the entire series, this is your shot. Do it for my honor and to aid your own understanding of the forthcoming episode. Also, this month, the Once in Future Nerd team is doing a push on Patreon to get to $500 per episode. So if you head over there and pledge them a dollar, you'll be doing them a tremendous favor. That's patreon.com slash onceandfuturenerd. We also have a Patreon over at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. If you want to stop by, drop by, and toss a nickel in the till. Thank you to Scott, Seth, and Pip for joining us at the friend of the show level at three bucks a month. That'll get you access to behind-the-scenes goofs. We're going to be retooling some of our higher-level Patreon tiers, so keep your eyes open for that in the coming months. And hey, thank you for listening. Y'all are absolutely splendid people, and it's a privilege to bring this show to you. And now, your moment of will. Hello, friends. To go with this week's episode, I have a little bit of fantastical trivia for you. Do you know what is said to be a fairy's favorite sound? No? Yes? Well, we'll see. Tune in next week where I will let you know the answer. And hey, you're doing great out there. I'm proud of you. Time for credits. 
Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Will Williams. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Elena Fernandez-Collins. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.